In our lives, so many of the arguments that we get into are over completely silly, small things. I would be willing to bet that if we all suddenly remembered the smallest, silliest thing that we got into an argument over, we'd become so embarrassed immediately that we'd want a hole in the ground to just open up and swallow us. So the story that we're looking at in this episode, it's about a dispute over a chicken, a supposedly stolen, perhaps eaten chicken that leads to a curse, which is why, as you may have guessed, the name of the story is The Curse. I've got a very interesting and not cursed at all guest to come uh, on and talk with me about this one. It's Jeffrey Kinkley, friend of, uh, friend of the pod, I guess. He's a guy I met all the way back when I attended that uh, genre fiction symposium in Leeds before the pandemic and finally uh, he's come on the show to chat with me so it's a really nice conversation and it also brought something a little bit not full circle but it picked up a very old thread in the show because I did an IE novel when I was just getting started I think before episode 10 uh, maybe just after episode 10 I had an uh, episode on IE's A Perfect Crime, a novel, and this time we're looking at a short story. And the interesting thing was whether or not either of them could be called crime is definitely up in the air. This one, I think The Curse is really not a crime fiction story, but it crime pervades it in one way or the other, which is pretty interesting. But I'll leave the discussion of those themes and genre questions to the actual interview because right now I'm going to take us to the Trucha Fig News, the translated Chinese fiction news. So we've got three items this time. As is more or less traditional, one of them is about Chinese sci-fi. It's the upcoming uh, London Chinese sci-fi group meeting. So if you're listening to this significantly far into the future, then you're probably too late. The event's happening July 31st, 2022 that is. It's going to be on a short story that you can read on Clark's World. That story is called The Strange Girl, and it's by Xin Xinyu. Oh, sorry, Xiu Xinyu. Uh, and the translator is Emily Jin, former guest on the show. So their event is going to have both the author and the translator on, and it's going to be hosted by, of course, friend of the pod, Guanzhao. I think if, it, if it's not Guanzhao, it'll be another one of the members of the group who are all excellent. So I'm going to be there for this one, unless something goes dreadfully wrong. I'm looking forward to attending, and if you're if you're going to join in yourself, then I've got a link in the show notes that will um, take you to their um, Mailchimp page about the event, uh, where you can email them to ask for an invite. If if you're still struggling or if it's not working for you, you can get in touch with me, and I'll make sure that you get in as well. Um, they will have events in the future as well, so even if you miss this one do sign up to their mailing list and you can join in future um, Zoom uh, Zoom gatherings to talk about translated Chinese uh, sci-fi stories. Okay, the next news item, this is not sci-fi, some of you may be relieved to hear. It's about uh, an anthology of Hong Kong literature that has been announced. So here you're gonna, you're gonna hear me botch some French pronunciations because this is not a Chinese to English uh, translation, this is Chinese to French translation. This was an, I saw this rather on Twitter, announced by Coraline Jorte. I told you I'd be butchering some French. And it's a, it's a collection of stories that are going to be published by, again, uh, here's some butchered French, Editions Gentayu. I think that's how you say it. <laughs> Maybe it's not how you say it. Uh, there's all sorts of um, interesting writers that are going to be in there. 
um, including Dorothy Tse, uh, Shishi, and other other people you may have heard of. I wouldn't try and list them all. But yeah, Hong Kong literature, something I've criminally, criminally undercovered on this show. I, I will get around to it. I guess I'll probably have to do a Hong Kong season like I did a Taiwan season. That that could be fun. Although I'd just as much like to do um, a, some kind of genre season, like weird season, sci-fi season two. I've, God knows there's enough there's enough stories out there to do either of those. So yeah, um, I, I'm getting self-indulgent, which means I should move us to the next story. Uh, just not the next new story. Before I do, I'll just say there is a link to pre-order that um, edition of Gentayu um, anthology in the show notes if, if you're interested, or you can just go look on Caroline's uh, Twitter. Okay, next news item. Now this one, whether or not this one is literature and whether or not we, we say it's about translation, I will leave up to you, but this is too crazy uh, not to give some some uh, amplification. So it's a, a, a story came to light that a um, Chinese housewife, um, and that's literally what she was, she was bored at home because her husband was away at work and she didn't have any friends, or so she said. She was spending years, or over years, she spent lots of time creating kind of a false or, or alternative Russian history on Wikipedia. I believe this was uh, the Chinese language pages of Wikipedia. And I, I won't go into the full details. I've linked to a Vice uh, story that covers it, where they've um, interviewed some of the people that got to the truth, um, got to <laughs> the bizarre truth of the matter. So yeah, um, I won't give you my own analysis of the story, because I don't really have one. But it's just interesting to see which parts of um, Russian history that this this lady took an interest in and decided to um, either modify or um, there's a there is a verb here I'm not thinking of, but you know, sort of expand and add to, but using her own uh, fiction and creative ideas weaved in with like real sources, real events to create, yeah, a bizarre digital parallel alternate history of a neighboring country. She didn't do this for Chinese history, she was doing this for Russian history. Couldn't make it up, could you? That's the end of the translated Chinese fiction news. So we're moving on now to the interview. You'll hear me, past version of me, talking to, Je uh, I almost said Jeremy, not Jeremy, talking to Jeffrey about Ayes the Curse. So buckle up, grab your chicken and enjoy. So I have on the show with me, Jeffrey Kinkley, extremely excited to have you here, Jeffrey. Astute listeners of the show might remember the name. I think I've talked a bit about you because we met in person uh, a lifetime ago, I think, in, in Leeds. And now you're back here on the show. Uh, could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your connection to Chinese literature? I was beginning to think about that actually a couple of years ago with help from a friend whose identity will be made clear shortly. Uh, <laughs> I can give you the whole nine yards. Feel free to cut me off if I uh, go too far astray. If it turns into 10 yards. <laughs> I recall that my introduction to uh, Chinese literature was through a translation, unsurprisingly. It was the Wang Jijun translation of Hung Lo Meng, uh, Dream of the Red Chamber, which I think he did in 1958. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, actually Wang Jijun, I discovered much later on was a friend through correspondence, at least with uh, Sun Sung Wan. Uh, Wang Jijun came to the US 
uh, in the 1920s. I think he went to college in Wisconsin and became a professor at Columbia. Maybe he was more or less the predecessor of C.T. Xia, Xiao Zhiqing. So, but nobody in those days, of course, knew who Shansun was. Shansun was, although actually he had been, you know, quite famous in the 1930s and 40s. People just forgot about him. So anyway, the interesting thing here is why did I know about this translation? Uh, it came from a book report that was done by a young woman I was dating at the time. Uh, here we're getting into the romance genre instead of the crime genre, so <laughs> bear with me. Uh, she and I were each other's first dates. Uh, her heart was stolen away, like all of her uh, female colleagues, by this band from across the pond. I forget what they, they were called, the arachnids or the Volkswagens or the drumsticks or something, beetles, I think. And uh, <laughs> it was extremely disheartening. All the girls jumping up and down and uh, you know, screaming and yelling and nobody had any girlfriends during that year. Anyway, I had the last laugh. Uh, I connected with her uh, after 40 years, total non-communication. Uh, I was married once before and have a very nice son from that marriage. Uh, but uh, 13 years ago, practically, we married. So it, all's well that ends well. Wonderful. <laughs> so now I would get back into crime fiction, but uh, the next chapter really was a period when there was no crime fiction in China and there was no post-Mao literature because there was no post-Mao. Mm -hmm. I began studying Chinese at the University of Chicago where it was taught as a dead language, a very dead language, dead air than a doornail. And uh, actually it was originally taught by H.G. Creel. We discovered through detective work that his name was Hurley Glessner uh, Creel. And he was, of course, in on the original digs for oracle bones at Anyang with uh, Li Ji and so forth. Anyway, I uh, got past that. I was actually a geography major uh, in college, which may explain some of my affinity for Shen Sunwen because Shen Sunwen was wrote so much about uh, local history and that sort of thing. Mm. So then it was at Harvard. I started studying Shen Sunwen and I was uh, a member of the world's best seminar. Can you imagine every week, five professors would get together and speak. Wow. Patrick Cannon, Benjamin Schwartz, Ezra Vogel, Yu Yingshi, and Alexander Woodside, who introduced me to Shen Sunwen. Uh, Cannon uh, recalled, and I think uh, this rings true. It was quite a surprise to me at the time. Most American professors in the 60s and 70s when they were interested in modern Chinese literature, which would be basically either Maoist literature or the May 4th literature before, I, I met quite a few who said, well, anything written in Bai Hua in the vernacular language was not literature. It had to be written in one yen. Hmm. Only then could it be literature. But those who were interested, they basically followed the Beijing line of uh, the revolutionary leftist writers were the important ones. So Woodside himself, uh, who introduced Shen Sunwen was kind of surprised because uh, the Bibles those days were Wang Yao, the Zhongguo Xin Wen Xue Shi Gao, the Shi Chu Gao, something like that, and uh, Li Hulin and Liu Shou Sun, those kind of people who were banned in China at the time because of the Cultural Revolution. But uh, Hong Kong booksellers kept those books alive. So anyway, uh, that those were great days. Uh, my fellow classmates included Perry Link, who was beginning to study his 
uh, Mandarin Ducks and Butterflies. And uh, there was Randall Edwards from the Columbia Law School who went on to direct the, the East Asian Legal Studies Center there. He was studying Judge Bao, which may have given me some ideas later on. Ezra mm -hmm. Bogle was studying Heroes of uh, Shui Hu Zhuan, the water margin. So uh, another couple things, um, Bonnie McDougall yes. taught modern Chinese literature. It was not an esteemed field, even at Harvard. Uh, that seminar I was in was uh, called Social History Through Popular Literature. And popular literature in those days, as I say, it didn't mean what it means now. Everything was either mass literature uh, of the Maoist type, or Bonnie had a particular interest in how this interacted with uh, the history of literature back to May 4th and beyond, even to the reform literature of the late Qing and folk literature. So that's something that's always in my mind, uh, thanks to her. And uh, then there was a wonderful conference too in 1974 at uh, Dedham, Massachusetts with a, a workshop before at Harvard that uh, led to the founding of uh, the Modern Chinese Literature Newsletter and then the Modern Chinese Literature Journal of Howard Goldblatt et al. And uh, then today, Kirk Denton's Modern Chinese uh, Literature and Culture website, which of course is second only to Paper Republic for authoritativeness mm. on current writing and translations. So uh, I had a, a, a great start. Now as to crime fiction, I can trace my interest in that exactly to two books. It was interesting. From 1980, this guy, uh, Sen Ying. Here we go, Jeffrey's, for people listening, Jeffrey's holding up the books for us to see. Yeah, oh, I should say, right. It's got sort of a bars look on it. Oh, and, and this one looks like it's maybe from the same series. Yeah. And uh, I don't know who uh, Sen Ying was, but it was a great collection. It came out of nowhere. I asked myself, how, after all these years of suppression, could people in China write, you know, Agatha Christie type puzzle, whodunits? Where did it come from? Had they been writing them all the time? But then on the other hand, there were these uh, crime fiction, which uh, Sun Ying saw as something different that uh, fed into the critique of the rule of law that had, of course, been such a problem during the Cultural Revolution. There were no lawyers. The whole profession was basically disestablished. Uh, the Ministry of, of Justice was uh, in abeyance. So uh, I think it was these books that kind of gave me the idea that there was a kind of bifurcation in uh, Chinese attitudes toward crime. That on the one hand, you have the traditional puzzle interest. And on the other hand, you have um, an interest in legal institutions and how they're evolving. And uh, one other book that really influenced me, of course, at that time, uh, Li Yi, uh, Li Yi of Hong Kong, again, had a whole right. series called Zhongguo Xin Xie Shi Zhui Wan Yi Zopin Xuan, a selection of uh, works of China's new literary realism. And I was, uh, Inspired by that, I think I had in 1982, the second conference or symposium to have uh, authorized attendance by scholars from both sides of the Taiwan Strait. First one was a Association for Asian Studies panel on the uh, 1911 revolution, Qinghai Geming. And uh, of course, there at the Iowa 
writers workshop, people had snuck out of Taiwan and uh, uh, met with their mainland counterparts. But uh, St. John's University, where I have had most of my career, uh, I'm retired now, uh, was bought and paid for by the Kuomintang of China. So I had mm -hmm. a certain license to invite Taiwan scholars and right. it went pretty well. So uh, the, the theme there was China, whether or not there was new realism in Chinese literature, since on the one hand, Li Yi had inspired us. And of course, we knew about Chinese literature through these intermediaries like Li Yi and others who did the scouting. There wasn't that much uh, comings and goings with China in those days. I was able to go to China in 1980 and again in 1981 and interview Shen Sungwan, and he came to the United States. But you know, we relied then, I think we still rely on our Chinese friends to tell us what to read and who are the upcoming writers. And uh, I don't speed read Chinese. Uh, I don't know, maybe maybe Nikki Harmon or Heather Inwood, uh, a bunch of Chinese people speed read Chinese, but I'm very reliant on these kinds of people. So uh, ever since then, uh, when I finally put out my book in 2000 on uh, what I called Chinese Justice, the Fiction, uh, I went back to the 1930s with Cheng Xiaoqing and Sun Liaohong, who uh, had written good puzzle kind of stories in the 30s. But uh, my emphasis was the 1980s. And uh, another person who helped me a lot was uh, Rudolf Wagner, who uh, unfortunately is deceased now. He really helped found uh, the Anglophone studies of uh, Chinese science fiction, uh, going back to the 1950s was revived in the 1980s. As he pointed out, a lot of it was written by scientists and he viewed it as a kind of lobby literature. So he asked me, you know, how much of this crime fiction is written by police officers? Right. And uh, that was an interesting thing because just a few years later, 1984, it was the Ministry of Public Security that uh, put out the flagship uh, magazine, Zuomuniao, The Woodpecker. It pecks out crime and bad people. That is and, a good name. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, the police had all sorts of workshops where policemen could come and write up cases they had been involved in. I don't think you could do that here in uh, the UK or US. <laughs> you'd, get, you'd get sued immediately. But they transformed them into short stories. And I was going to go to China to interview authors in uh, 1990. Uh, excuse me, 1989, summer, and uh, certain events intervened. Uh, but uh, after the massacre, I was allowed already in uh, November to go to China. It was a very interesting time. Mm. I went around interviewing uh, crime authors, and probably one of my first questions, do you work for the police? They probably thought I worked for the CIA or something. <laughs> Ask yeah. me questions like that. Spy but versus spy. A, right. It, it was a necessary question. And uh, a lot of my help was that there were exiles from China, including people from the Ministry of Public Security, uh, particularly a lady, uh, Helen Wong, uh, not the Helen Wong that we know from the <laughs> public who has made so many contributions uh, in translation. But uh, she was the partner of uh, Gu Hua, the Hunanese author of Furun Zhen, a town called Hibiscus, as Gladys Young translated. She gave me lots of tips, people who went to interview and so forth. So I did that. And uh, since then, of course, I've gone on to some other genres like historical fiction. And uh, actually, I was going to write a sequel on 
just because I had so much left over about Chinese crime fiction. But a lady in Beijing who was sending me magazines, uh, uh, popular Chinese literary publications, suddenly sent me this book, uh, Heaven's Wrath, Ten New by Chan Fang. It was one of the fundamental books, although it was quickly banned in China, of anti-corruption fiction. So I turned to that for a while. So yeah. that's kind of how I got into Chinese, Chinese crime fiction. Mm-hmm. And I can say I've read one of your books. Um, I was reminded of this because Facebook did that thing where it tells you what you were posting about a year ago. And I was posting about having started uh, your book, which talks about Heaven's Wrath, I believe, and some, some of the other corruption novels out there. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I, so I guess that wasn't your early works. I was jumping in midway or halfway through but it was it was an interesting read because just from my perspective someone who's only reading the translations but is also really interested in sort of outlier books that come through into English that don't fit patterns of the, the books we normally see on bookshelves it's just very very illuminating um you know seeing what people were reading not maybe not right now in China but back then in a different time but the other thing about it that interested me is that it's, uh, it's, how can I phrase this? Um, I am, I'm a big, I'm always say that I'm on team genre fiction rather than team literary fiction. Of course, I wouldn't really want to pick one, but if I did, I would pick genre fiction. But when you say genre fiction, in my mind, and maybe in readers like me, we think of speculative fiction. So sci-fi, horror, fantasy, um, which are definitely, they are definitely interlinked but they really are quite at odds with probably the two other big commercial genres, which would be, at least in the West, crime and thrillers and romance. I believe mm. um, uh, romance is the biggest one in most of the Anglophone world, with the exception right of the, U- the UK. We must be a little bit darker minded because we're a little bit more into crime and thrillers than romance. But yeah, the, 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 the thing that makes crime and thrillers, maybe more so crime, stand out to me is that it is... I suppose you could debate how much, but it's like a re- it's a realist genre, or it has a foot in the realist sort of camp in a way that romance doesn't. For well, I suppose romance might, but it's it's not the gritty realism. It would be more mundane realism. But definitely, spec fic, spec fic and realism aren't really friends. That kind of it's kind of would be self defeating if they were. But yeah, it's so it's an it's interesting because realism as a as a genre leads you into all sorts of interesting political questions, and I guess that's pretty obvious in in your body of work whether it's policing ideas about justice or corruption and how it's thought about and talked about in in Chinese lit and it it would be great to do a whole episode on some corruption fiction there is at least one book in translation in that genre it's uh, in the name of the people which is Mm -hmm. I guess again that's a bit of an outlier because that's a resurrection of the genre but again I'd love to talk about that forever but we should focus on our our chosen story and our chosen right. author. That's um, Ie's The Curse. Actually, no, that's nonsense. My next question is, what does the crime filler genre look like inside China? So I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll say again, our story for the episode is The Curse. That's by Ie. It is definitely, well, we could debate. It is nominally a crime story, definitely with a heavy dose of realism. I'll try and argue it has some darker speculative or speculative elements as well that that is our story but before i get to the story i want to just ask you jeffrey how do you describe what the crime and thriller 
genre scene looks like inside China um, today, but also maybe what what brought it to where it is today? Uh, it would take a lot of uh, chutzpah, if I may borrow the term from uh, the magazine, of which I think uh, IE was a a founder, along with Oni, in I think uh, 2011. Uh, I really don't have a grasp of all of it. Uh, there's this new book by uh, Megan Walsh called uh, oh, yes. The Subplot. Um, she, in, in fact, mentions the In the Name of the People, which was a big TV show in 2017, as well as a novel by Zhou Mei Sun. Mm-hmm. And I can only give a halfway impression. Uh, my impression is that current crime writing in China tends to have um, psychopaths, dismembered corpses, mm. forensic medical examinations, uh, profiling, Lei Mi is, is an important author there, of people with really weird psychological makeups. And this has some overlap with Ai, but I don't consider him a, pro- a crime writer. Actually, his book, A Perfect Crime, yeah. uh, it was the publisher who, for the English edition, I assume, gave it the title that made it into genre fiction. Right. Because uh, I think originally it was... Uh, it's cat, cat and Mouse, Mao He Lao Shu, I think is... Yeah. I think and it might have had... Took from, I think the movie version, but not the book version of yeah, the Anthony Burgess right. Clockwork Orange. Xiaoming Wo Gai Gan Xie Shema. Yeah. Actually, from the Chinese, could be translated as what the heck should I do next? I don't know. That's right. Yeah. What voice it is. So um, anyway, I, that book is more about crime fiction. Immediately, I recognized Merceau from uh, L'Etranger. Mm. Uh, and he has admitted that there is a connection there. But obviously, it's a completely different existentialist work. But the question is, you know, everything to, to the hero, too. You just don't know what's going to happen next. So anyway, uh, the interesting thing about crime fiction now, uh, In the Name of the People was a bestseller and has been for several years, I think, but it's about the only Chinese author, Huozhe by Yuhua, which is not really a crime fiction thing, is another bestseller. But for crime fiction, the favorite author in recent years, Running Away, has been uh, Gingashi no Keigo. Uh, I forget what the Chinese characters are. Uh, Keigo Hingashino, in the way that Anglophone publishers put it. He writes detective fiction. In fact, uh, that I thought quite excellent book that was on one of your podcasts that uh, Michelle Dieter uh, translated. Uh, uh, the Untouched the Crime. Untouched, the Untouched Crime. Right. Yeah. That um, strikes me as very much influenced by and some people even accused it of plagiarism, which I think is totally unfair. But it has the same thing of a person skilled in uh, forensic and uh, interrogation techniques, advising people he knows have committed a crime to help them get out of it. And again, there's the idea of profiling and all this sort of thing, uh, which she dealt with very well in her translation. So uh, this is, I think, crime fiction is not very important in China. It uh, doesn't have prizes, for instance. That's one of the indications. And it, you know, can't compare with science fiction. 
So, uh, actually, Liu Cixin's three body, all three volumes of what I refer to as his three body trilogy are bestsellers, have been for some time, right up there on the lists. And well, the science fiction is genre. I mean, it's obviously genre fiction of a sort, but it's sort of on the way to serious fiction, too, because it's an avenue by which you can criticize the present by pretending to criticize uh, the future, pretending to imagine the future. Uh, there are other genres, you know, like historical fiction, uh, which, in our view, is popular fiction. I mean, you think of actually Ken Gelder, who wrote about some of these things, I think, traces it back to Sir Walter Scott uh, and James Finmar Cooper, Kenneth Roberts, Leon Uris, uh, Clavel, those kind of people. So, in, but the ones in China that I was interested in were actually high literature. Uh, people by Gofei Li Rei, Su Tong, Mo Yan. They've written historical fiction, which is not genre fiction. So, i.e., I, I would say his work probably would not be called crime fiction. Uh, there's a big debate in crime fiction studies uh, about what crime fiction is, whether it's high, whether it's low, that sort of thing. Uh, one of the major journals now. A new journal is what Crime Fiction Studies, uh, published at the University of Edinburgh this last couple of years, I think. So uh, crime fiction in China probably is not a going thing. It must compete with all these online uh, fantasy genres that uh, Megan Walsh and other people talk about. It's a crazy scene, and I don't really have command of it, I have to admit. Right. It is worth mentioning, I guess, it would be if I have a job here, it's to talk about how these books perform in English translation. And it's definitely notable that a reasonable slice of Chinese uh, fiction that makes it translated into English is crime. Um, maybe not it's a, maybe not a huge fraction taken against the whole, but if you kind of set aside everything which is more sort of um, literary or highbrow fiction uh, from the stuff that is more clearly in genres, Crime is pretty well represented. It's probably increasingly outnumbered by sci-fi, but at least in print form, it's ahead of translated wuxia because that's that mostly lives online, I think. So yeah, um, I th I think that's a pretty good intro. Um, we can move on. In, to in fact, uh, yeah. Zhou Haohui had this. Uh, I forget the title of it now. It, it, it was highly promoted in uh, the US and UK, but I went to get a copy of it in China, in Shanghai of all places. People mm. had not heard of it. I had great difficulty. Finally, sort of a Peitung who was with me when I was at a conference at Shanghai International Studies University of all places. They finally located a copy. It was not easy. So uh, there is definitely a devoted niche readership. But right. I, I think uh, our audiences are much more interested in it than most Chinese. But again, uh, what's going on online, I really can't tell. Right, yeah. Zhou Haohui was the guy whose book uh, Death Notice we did on the show. Death Notice, yeah. And yeah, I kind of, I kind of wondered. I remember seeing that he, he, I think he started off online and then was made it big enough there that he moved into, into print. And he's had, like, Death Notice is part of a whole series. I think, yeah, the second, the sequel did come out in English. Um, I guess that's a probably longer series in the, the original language publication. And there Very has been, I think, yeah. one or maybe even two film or TV adaptations. So I mm -hmm. wonder if perhaps some of these things are trapped. They begin in 
you know, in web or print and then travel a bit more on TV, on streaming services or channels or whatever. Again, I, I wouldn't know, just, just speculating. Yeah, Xi Jinping's anti-corruption initiatives uh, in the later 2010s, I think were important in the flourishing of the In the Name of the People a book and TV show. Beforehand, I'm not sure something like that could have been uh, distributed so widely. Yeah, yeah. In your your uh, book, whose I'm ashamed to admit whose name is escaping me, uh, the one that I read, I was really interested to see that Joe Mason is probably the I don't know, I don't know if this is right, but like the most active part of his literary career, where he was maybe seeing most publication and the most reading was back in the 80s or 90s and then the occasion of um she's anti-corruption drive kind of just brought him back in his previous yeah, form yeah hey i was going to have a chapter on him in my anti-corruption book uh he was very active in the late 90s uh beginning of the uh, 21st century but <laughs> i thought well he's a little too derivative for my taste so but he has had a revival uh, there was someone uh, at the University of Toronto who wrote a book on film and TV adaptations of crime fiction. She, uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember her name, by I think, uh, came to the same conclusion that uh, there was a party congress around 2002 that kind of shut down everything. I remember when I was in China at the uh, turn of the 21st century, there were whole sections of bookstores, even Xinhua bookstores that were devoted to Fan Fu Bai, Ti Tai Xiao uh, anti-corruption fiction mm. but presumably those were all closed down uh, as the years went down until Xi Jinping revived it but again I have not spent enough time in China to really give a an authoritative evaluation of it yeah I, I was there when um, the TV show in the name of the people came out and as far as I could gather the name of the show carried some currency but I didn't mm. I didn't hear anyone talking about the book but then again wasn't talking to that many people about books in the first place. The, the mm. one that always carried currency was Three Body Santi, uh, Three Body right. Problem. People always knew the title at the very least, and they usually had something to say. Even if they hadn't read it, they might have something to say about it. President Obama read it, all three volumes, while he was president. That might have been why he looked so demoralized by the end of <laughs> the quite demoralizing books. He was ready for what would come afterwards, maybe. He, he had certain premonitions. <laughs> mm, right, yeah. Okay, we should get to IE now. Um, okay, we should. So for, yeah, for listeners who didn't listen to my very early episode on IE, let's introduce him again. Um, I think you hit on a very interesting line when you mentioned that A Perfect Crime, his one book you can get, uh, no, not his one book you can get in, trans in translation, but one book of his you can get in English translation I've done on the show uh, you mentioned that it reminded you a lot of The Stranger or The Outsider mm. as it's sometimes known uh, right. Les Étrangers by Camus and that is I think if someone said recommend me an existential novel that's the first one most people would say it's like the existential novel it's pretty short it's relatively fast-paced and it offers you no comfort it's a pretty bleak picture that doesn't stop to explain itself and everything I've read by IE which I think is just yeah everything I've read by IE no I've read three things I've read uh, A Perfect Crime I've read this short story The Curse 
and mm-hmm. I read his uh, A Match Held to the Flame, which was a little sort of blog post he wrote or some small piece of like a sandwich, maybe, I'm not sure, translated by Dylan Levi King, posted on Paper Republic. And it was just sort of his thoughts on, pan- I, f- I forget if he was writing during lockdown in China or if it was after the fact and uh, COVID was coming for all of us, but it was his thoughts mm-hmm. on like the life in lockdown. It was an interesting perspective because it was, yeah, it wasn't that bleak. It was a little bit more hopeful, but it had that same sort of IE uh, dark perspective. So yeah, um, that's that's the stuff of his I've read, and yeah, the ex- grim existentialism. Existentialism, you might say, is more of a focus than the crime. But yeah, that's that's what I would say off off the cuff. How would you characterize IE? Well. Um... You know, I, I'm really looking forward to a new translation. I think it's coming out in a couple months from uh, Nicky Harmon, in fact. It's uh, one of his novels, um, Wake Me Up When It's 9 a.m., something like that. And I haven't seen it yet. Uh, I Just seeing secondhand descriptions of it, I think it may have sort of a Faulknerian as I may as I lay dying sort of thing of different narrative voices, but really I'm just speculating. You know, there is one other book, as a matter of fact, I have read a few stories. Uh, it's called Two Lives by Ai. Yes. Uh, and this is translated by uh, Alex Wood End. Yep. Again, it, it's, it's a very hopeless book. If I can even narrate the plots of a couple of stories if you want me to, but they're even more hopeless than this uh, the curse and yeah <laughs> they're also hard to understand i there are some uh, chinese versions available online unauthorized i imagine in fact i found a couple slightly different versions of the curse uh hmm. in in chinese uh but um yeah uh, Definitely, I would not call him a crime author, but but we can get into that. Maybe we should talk about the curse. Uh, yeah, yeah. Then we can talk about this. <laughs> Has it uh, evidently? I had some severe health problems at one mm. point. He had an immunodeficiency disease that attacked his lungs. I'm not sure. It's hard to get a timeline. And again, I'd have to have lots of chutzpah to even talk about I because he's written a lot of things. Uh, right. That, just looking at what's available, probably unauthorized online. And uh, I, I, I don't know. He, I did meet him once very briefly in 2015 when he came to New York. And he looked all right then. And he has been seen online. There was some EU, in other words, European Union, China Literature Fest. There was a YouTube video of him from 2020 when oh, he was cool. so He was reading Proust. When in Rome, writing a long I have no idea what will come out of that. Good for him. Um, I guess it might be worth mentioning his um, professional background before he went full-time writer. If I remember mm. correctly, he was a cop in Jiangxi. I don't remember much more than that. I, I I don't remember if he gave reasons for why he left or what he thought about it, but. Jiangxi is not one of the wealthiest provinces in China, and I think that's right. that is worth. I can come in as, as your geographer. Uh, he was from uh, Rei Chang, 
which is a little place. I guess he was in a rural area and it's just south of the Yangtze River. It's it's in Jiangnan. It really isn't that far away, from me, but evidently there are mountains and many of his characters are mountain things. As Michel Dieter and some of the others said, many uh, of these works published in China, when they write about crime, they have to dis disguise or make anonymous uh, mm. the area where it is. But I sometimes tells you that it isn't Jiangxi. He has a special license to talk about uh, Jiangxi, evidently. Right. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. Again, for listeners that didn't listen to that one with Michelle, in English translations, you'll sometimes see a story, let's say a story that is set in, uh, okay, I'm going to name one, uh, Suzhou. I can name it. Uh, Chou writing in English right. from Shanghai. When that was translated into Chinese, uh, he had to call it H-City. H-City, right. I don't know whether that's because of who. Oh, yeah. Or maybe it's from Haishan. That's the old literary word, Haishan Hua and all that sort of thing. Anyway, okay. he had to disguise street names and all that sort of thing. Oh, right. Like L Street. Z Street. <laughs> huh. Damn. So where where we yeah, so we mentioned he's 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 a he was a cop. He was in he's Jiangxi. I was wondering, mm -hmm. in in my mind, I don't fit him in any group of writers. I sit him on his own as a lone wolf. Is that is that more or less right? Like, does does he fit in any sort of groupings that you might know of? Well, not that I know. As I say, he had this uh, relationship with Oning, with oh, his yeah. magazine uh, Hutzpah. Uh, that I think was 2011. I think the first publication of the English translation by Julia Lovell is that, is that uh, how you pronounce her name? Mm -hmm. uh, was in uh, 2011 at the inaugural issue of Hutzpah. And uh, I, I don't know about the original Chinese, probably from about that time. And that was a journal, a literary journal, some of whose issues have, some of whose stories have been translated by the uh, Oklahoma University Press in, in Norman, Oklahoma, of all things, uh, which is a center of world literature. It's where world literature today used to be, or still is published in Chinese literature. Oning was very, very interested in rural problems. In fact, mm. I lately, I, I saw a YouTube video. He said, the countryside has been hollowed out. And we see these themes as in the curse where the young folk all immigrate to the cities. Uh, the girls work in factories. The boys work in construction, all that sort of thing. Uh, parents don't get to see them. Kids are raised by the grandparents. A lot of this was enacted, you know, decades ago in Japan, uh, but Japan has, has pretty well. But of course, in China, the distances between the countryside mm. and uh, the city are much greater. And uh, so Oning, it, it's kind of interesting. He, Oning was a uh, literary and media entrepreneur and empresario. He did a couple of films and he was particularly interested in sort of utopian villages. There was mm. one in uh, Guang, Guangzhou, I guess it's uh, uh, San Yuanli, which I believe has a very famous anti-British museum. Uh, <laughs> there was an incident, I bet Julia Lovell has written all about that. She's written this wonderful book about the Opium War. Um, yeah, I, in fact, I think uh, there, the incident there that was taken as a great patriotic Chinese reprise to within the Opium War was that uh, some soldiers were foraging, maybe for chickens, and uh, the Chinese beat them. 
So anyway, in uh, the Latter-day version, the people from what was originally a rural community that had been, I guess, surrounded by city, uh, maintained their old organic rural community. They were growing chickens on rooftops and things like that. Hmm. And so that was sort of a commune and it was a subject of a film, which I have never seen. So I really shouldn't oh, talk about it. But uh, there was an even more famous sort of anarchist utopian commune at Bishan, uh, which I guess is mm -hmm. at the foot of Mount Huang, uh, Huangshan. Mm -hmm. This is a very good place for utopia, I think. But that was very <laughs> controversial uh, because, you know, it attracted tourism uh, owning in his view, I think he's in New York now, had oh, interesting. embraced commercialism as a necessary support of uh, reform and so forth. And But there were lots of controversies over the Bishan commune. And of course, there's a long history of anarchist communes. It goes back to Jozoran and his interest in Tolstoyan uh, utopian villages like uh, Mushikoji no Saniatsu back in Japan. And uh, Shujumo had some kind of utopian thing in Zhejiang with Leonard Elmhurst. And of course, there were all sorts of reconstruction things going on. This was kind of interesting. So it was evidently for commercial reasons that Chutzpah uh, shut down in 2014. Uh, but uh, Oklahoma has kind of preserved some of the stories in English translation and it looked like a very good book. So uh, that's one of them many things I want to read. But yeah, this interest in rural change that uh, IE got from his stint as a policeman, probably dealing with the very dark side of society, seems to have influenced all of his work. I'll add one little coda to what you were saying about Bishan and Oning. If listeners want to get a very quick, a literally visual look at what Oning gets up to, he is on Instagram. And he, it's a public account, so you can see some of the like photos from some of the villages and, and things that he gets gets up to, and it does all have like a sort of rural utopian vibe. And the feeling I always got looking at his photos was that he's looking for some kind of either alternatives or old ways that are not overtly political. But of course, in China, that's a good way to keep these things going: is don't make them overtly political, keep them small. In fact, I think Oning now is part of uh, Francis Waitman and Sarah Dobbs' stable. You know, I think he's an editor for this Writing Chinese oh, yes. magazine they've founded recently. It looks very good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to pop a link to... The, I've just Googled Oning Bishan, and there's quite a few different articles that are up there with lots of interesting photos. So I'll pop one of those in the show notes for, for listeners who are whose ears have pricked up. Uh, I'm going to take us back, though, to the curse. Uh, I thought we could talk about the plot. Mm, yeah, yeah. Funny that you mentioned chicken thieves, um, real or imagined, because that's kind of where the action kicks off in this story. We have uh, two, uh, a lady going by the name of Zhong Yonglian, and she is, we're told that she's deduced that her neighbor, Wu Haiying, another lady, was responsible for the disappearance. I'll I'll do what I usually try to do. I'll try and go through the plot in broad strokes. And if you feel I've missed anything crucial, then we can fill it in. Does that suit you? Yeah, I actually, I took a few notes on it. Do you want me? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, you'd rather do it. Um, I can do it pretty I'll, fast. 
Okay, well, I'll give the really broad version, then we can go okay. through your notes. So um, one lady accuses the other of stealing her chicken. They have a scuffle. Um, our protagonist, Jong Yonglian, loses the scuffle pretty badly. So she gets revenge by cursing Wu Haiying. And I think the curse amounts to if 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 I if you did steal my chicken, then your son will die. And that's that both both women have sort of wayward sons who've left the left this rural village. Uh, Wu Haiying, the accused uh, woman's son, comes back and he's he's made it rich. Um, he's got bling. He's got a girlfriend. The cops come in to get him. He has to do a runner, but ultimately he does get away. Then our protagonist, Zhong Yonglian's son, comes back and he, he just doesn't seem to care about anything. Well, we've been told he doesn't care about anything and he's especially distant this time. I think he has one little heartfelt half moment. And then we learn, then he, he passes away and we learn that he's wrecked his body working some, in some toxic industrial site. And I guess the story ends with the two women finding some common ground and staring out like old uh, socialist patriotic statues while Beyonce plays in the background. That's <laughs> sort of That's it. Weird. <laughs> it's a powerful ending, I think. But it's a strange kind of power. Well, what, what did you make of the Beyonce song? I just wondered if that's what I had been listening to lately. I, I think I'd be more qualified to, to answer your question if I'd ever listened to that song all the way through. But it's just one of those ones that played in the background or played on TV or on the radio and I wouldn't pay attention because I'm a snob. I looked up that song on, uh, you know, the internet, and evidently it's a song that uh, Beyonce or somebody else wrote for her. She may have made some additions to it, and it was a love song about her love of. Uh, I guess there's a rapper Jay Z. Oh yeah, they're a couple. It's a complete love song. So Halo, she imagines him as this godlike person that has a halo, and how he transformed her life, and it's really it's not at all dark yeah it's yeah very very cheesy almost yeah a guy like i.e kind of interesting there, there was one more paragraph there were a couple paragraphs that i noticed differed in the two different uh, editions one you know there's this dramatic scene where uh the son of the wu clan escapes then he gets comes back to the wu house and the police come again uh, a, a three-person posse, a policeman, his driver, and somebody from the local militia who has a, a Stalin mustache, like, like you know, the Russian leader. And so uh, then it says that uh, 
basically somehow it's cleared up because the Wu clan had connections in the provincial government and they got it all hushed up. Now in one version that has been deleted, that aspect of corruption. But the other thing that kind of uh, intrigued me was in the edition, which actually is printed in the Chinese edition on the Leeds website, there is one more paragraph. So it's talking about these two women who kind of, I guess they reconcile and they sit there like stones. And then evidently in a shift of voice into the voice of the narrator, it says, uh, I, the author, was that uh, rural policeman, one of that posse of three told people to just calm down you know when the Wu clan were surrounding uh, the three law enforcement officers and he says that the way you know that it actually must be I he, he continues and says after that I resigned as a cop and I went all over the place I went over to the different you know prefectures and so forth uh, looking for work everywhere then comes up with a very mysterious line looking for a really special or supernatural woman. I don't know really what that has to do with anything. But anyway, this seems to indicate, <laughs> this is sort of a confession that this is a case that I.E. in his previous life as a rural policeman encountered, and most of his stories seem to be struck, uh, uh, formed in that way, in another edition of the story, it says he thanks somebody called Yang with coming mm. up with the details of it. And the original title of this book, uh, of this story in Chinese is Yang Chun, Yang Chun, some, some, uh, Yang Village. So presumably mm. he's one of the Yang villagers um, that came up with this story. So uh, this, I think, is the link to law enforcement and that. I.E. once was a policeman. A lot of his stories uh, come up with what seem like bizarre crime cases that he might have encountered or heard about. I know, for instance, Liu Zhenyun, uh, he, there are a lot of his stories now that are translated. Like the recent one for Cambria Press is um, called uh, Strange Bedfellows. Uh, and uh, that was by Gold, translated by Goldblatt and his wife, uh, Sylvia Legion Lee, who was my, once my student at St. John's at, in the MA program. Uh, she was already very good in translation long before that. But anyway, uh, Liu Zhenyun takes stuff from the newspapers. Evidently, a lot of uh, Chinese writers just find bizarre stories in newspapers and they make them into fiction. But here, I.E., probably is... Uh, stringing together interesting anecdotes that he's heard about as a policeman. Now, you asked me in our prior discussions over Facebook Messenger, what did I think of this uh, bizarre excised final paragraph, especially the phrase um, about the supernatural woman? So, yeah. And my first thought was, okay, maybe something's lost in translation. Charles Zeran, like supernatural, does that mean something different in the original Chinese? And I figured probably not. Like I use Google Translate to break down, I guess I knew Chao, Chao is like super. I think that's pretty straight Mm -hmm. translation. Zeran, nature. So it's just super nature. So 
okay i i I don't, I don't know would, would you agree that that's there's not anything especially different in those chinese and english terms i i really have no idea or uh what to make of it and i don't yeah. know who this woman would be uh, unless it's a figment of his imagination or how it relates to the story okay so that's my uh my thoughts as far as like uh literal literal meaning goes but if I could try and make it weird I th- or more uh, abstract, I think I can say something. Um, oh, that would be challenging. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so I'm going to bring up... Weirder. Yes, yes. I'm going to bring up the uh, the, our, the, trans- the English translation. So the fi- I think the final, in the final like few paragraphs, he's, I think he's trying to do something kind of transcendent. So these are the, the final paragraphs. I don't need your help. She made her way over to her neighbor's house, ever so slowly, as if she were convalescing from an illness. Seeing Zhong Yonglian sit carefully down on her stone threshold, Wu Haiying brought a stool for her to sit on. The ground's too cold to sit on. I was wrong about the chicken. Shush now. Wu Haiying squatted down and stroked Zhong Yonglian's hand. The tears ran silently down Wu's face, while Zhong stared stolidly into the middle distance like one of those socialist realist statues of the revolutionary martyrs. A migrant laborer who hadn't yet left for the South was playing an American pop song in one of the houses near the mouth of the village. And then it quotes some lyrics. Everywhere I'm looking now, I'm surrounded by your embrace. Baby, I can see your your halo. You know you're my saving grace. You're everything I need and more. It's written all over your face. Baby, I can feel your halo. Pray it won't fade away. They sat there listening. I think you've solved it. Yes. Yeah. How that's have I the, solved it? That's Tell the me. woman. That's the supernatural woman with a halo. Maybe she is the one he, that I is looking for. Yeah. So like, although the mysterious paragraph is excised from this, that would be the next one. So I guess I'll read, I'll read Google's translation of that as well to okay. close it off. They listened. Google did a good job, I think. Um, they listened blankly like stones. As the author, I was the country policeman who shouted, calm down. I later resigned from the police position and traveled across the state. I like how it's used the word state. Makes it kind of American. Yeah, Yeah. traveled across the province, working everywhere just to catch a glimpse of a supernatural woman. My, oh, I was going to say my other thought about literal translation is, so it says, Chao Suran the Nuren, Nuren, being Chinese, we don't know if it's singular or plural, right? So could it be woman rather than woman? What do you think to that one? Could be. It doesn't have a... Uh, uh, a number. It doesn't say Iga yeah. Nuren, just Nuren. Yeah, so that there's that. But my, yeah, my big abstract point would be, yeah, he's trying to do something transcendent here that takes us out above or beyond or outside of the normal realism. And there's a few, if we're doing close reading, maybe there's a few clues. So one is the halo. And the fact is music, because music is something that by its nature, it creates an effect in you that is never a logical effect. And it can often be sort of transcendent. And I think Beyonce's voice, I'm not a huge Beyonce fan, but like, I know the chorus of this song and it is quite, it is quite touching. But I think it's interesting as well that it comes from a migrant laborer so almost the lowest of the low in chinese society and it's coming from like must be their speaker or maybe even their smartphone and it's not it's not even named it just says an american pop song and it reminds me of a, a quote from the sci-fi author philip k dick pkd uh 
I forget if it's in one of his, just his nonfiction writings or if it's in his books, maybe Valis. He says, um, the symbols of the divine show up, always, show up always first in the trash stratum, I think is what he says. And I think it's kind of true. You don't need um, an opera to pluck out some operatic socialist realist universal imagery. A Beyonce song will do just fine. In fact, it's better because it's more proletarian. Beyonce is not the music of the elite. It's the music of normies or, or even downtrodden she's pretty uh, rich now though <laughs> oh yeah she's not one of the downtrodden <laughs> no 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 not at all sorry sorry yeah that was... that, that's populism for you you don't need to be one of the downtrodden to be the leader um and yeah and i think the other thing that is transcendent is the resurrection of like old school socialist um imagery the statues because yeah. we're told first that they're like statues and then we're told they're blank like stones so they're becoming symbols they're fizzling away as or solidifying from being these fleshy mortal individuals into a frozen image and i think like the way he because there's so much action in the story things never stop happening but right at the end these two characters all their anger fizzles away they sit down and then they stop moving and music plays and it's a very strange peaceful image so i kind of think yeah he's um he's completely changing the tone uh quite quickly and quite subtly and it's like a trick because you don't even know what's happened but i think reading it those the image of the two of them confronting each other staring out into the distance and i've walked past a lot of these statues in china and the thing about them is, although they do have these epic features, they're always workers or, well, no, not, they're not always workers. They're often soldiers. Or if they're workers, they're standing sort of Soviet style, mm-hmm. looking powerful. But these, these women, I think, are a more realistic picture of the working class. They're dead tired. They're exhausted. And they don't know what's going on, um, which I think is, that's realism. That's I guess you could say that's realism with socialist characteristics rather than socialist realism, which isn't a particularly realistic style of art, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So that's my attempt at a mega brain interpretation. That, that, that is interesting. It does go from themes of revenge and petty dislike of each other to a sort of reconciliation at the same, uh, at the very end. In fact, I saw one uh, online interpretation that said it reminded the reader of uh, Lu Xun's famous story, Medicine Yao, where the two mothers from completely different, uh, who, whose uh, dead kids must have come from different walks of life. One is a revolutionary who provided the blood for the, we would say, superstitious cure of putting a a manto or bowser or something in blood of a martyr. And then the other one uh, was the mother of a sick kid who wanted that cure. So they come together at the, the grave at the very end. And this kind of reconciliation theme, I'm not sure whether that's, it, it's very abstract in Wushun, but here it, it, it clearly there is some kind of reconciliation, except that I, you can read everything two ways uh, when, uh, the lady who delivered the curse, Zhong uh, Yunlian, says, I shouldn't have uh, criticized, uh, talked about the chicken. Maybe she's blaming herself. <laughs> she said, I just shouldn't have done it. 
or yeah. maybe he's making up with the other person. You don't really know whether, or you don't know what the author's attitude is toward the whole curse business. Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, I was actually thinking you could flip it. So the reading I gave painted, i.e. as a guy trying to do something uh, that made these guys look like, I don't know, 21st century depressed socialist heroes. Um, you could just as easily say he's putting them He's comparing them to statues as an ironic move to show you how those dreams didn't really cash out too much for the yeah. rural people of China. Maybe they did a little bit more successfully for urbanites, but we're clearly very far from the city here. And that that is a less weird reading. It might it might be more in line with Ai's um, pessimism. But the reason I'm kind of inclined to think he's not adverse to doing something that shoots us away from realism is there's a bit in the story where he's turned. In a dream, there's a dream sequence, not a dream sequence, a dream scene where um, if anyone's read any Lovecraft stories that involve tentacled sea monsters rising from the depths, you might you might find, feel a bell ringing because there's a description of this dream Jong Jong Lian is having on the night her son has returned where he's, um, let me just do a control F and type in Squid? Yeah, okay, so there's a bit here. Um, I'll just read the paragraph. Exhausted by sleepless nights, one day she dozed off in the chair. She dreamed that Guofeng, that's her son, was a little boy again, but his face was bleached white, his voice barely a whisper. She ladled him out some porridge, stirred in some medicine, and told him to eat it up. But Guofeng just stared at her wretchedly, shaking his head. Anxiety clutched at her heart. After she put the bowl away, she discovered that a vast squid-colored creature was sprawled over her bed, over the bed. There goes a the train. Uh, I've lost my place. Yes, sprawled over the bed. It's emaciated chest inlaid with fibrous tendons and bones. It's limbs like flayed rabbit, rabbit, rabbit legs. Some of its heaving internal organs had been punctured and dark blood was dripping down onto the floor. Now it was half squatting, its right hand flat against the bedboard, its bowed legs buckling as it tried to lever its exhausted body up, while the cotton coat covering it slid off. Its enormous cobble-shaped head was almost hairless and featureless, except for a vast, panting, stinking mouth armed with long, sharp teeth. As it struggled for breath, its cheeks inflated, then deflated. Swaying as if it were about to fall, the creature suddenly reached out to grab her. She woke up. There was a cold ache to her wrist. So um, if I was trying to downplay this, I'd say, well, he's just picked a very nice metaphor that shows you that she's afraid of her son, but he's also dying. I guess it's foreshadowing because we don't know he's dying yet. Oh, sure. But my spec, inner spec fic uh, fanatic says, well, he's picked one of the weird, the animal from weird fiction, the squid, the octopus, an inherently creepy weird animal uh, he didn't have to do that that's, that's it can't be an accident and then later when we we learn he's dead um we're told his insides have essentially dissolved he's gone from being a living seemingly just tired person to a person whose insides i don't know almost like he's been replaced by some melting wax object and i don't know it's just it's so out there i kind mm. of feel that if he can do this, he'll do anything. And he'll probably try and sneak it past you before you even realize he's done it. Yes, I, I saw two possible interpretations that we can't quite reconcile as to why the son of uh, the woman who delivered the curse, uh, Zhong 
died. Why did he die? Was it because of the curse? And uh, the curse was enacted because it was spoken. And therefore, through some supernatural means, it was enacted. Uh, his death was very strange. He came back from the South, all exhausted. He lay down in bed after having some soup or something that uh, his mother gave him. And then suddenly he dies. His flesh basically rots away, which mm. doesn't make much sense. It's not realistic, certainly. That kind of suggests the supernatural interpretation of why he died. But then, what is it, later on, uh, a legal aid intern shows up and said, oh, he died due to the toxins that he must have uh, ingested or smelled there at the factory down, down near Guangzhou. And... Uh, there's a natural cause for it, and it becomes an element of social criticism. Certainly, we know there are inhumane working conditions down there. So there are two, I see kind of two alternative, alternate explanations for why he died. Yeah, and it's, again, interesting. A thing I spotted this time that I didn't jump out at me so much the first time I read this story was that that, um, that young fellow who shows up is clearly trying to do a little bit of... Um, I guess you could call it pro work. I hesitate to use the word leftist because left and right means almost nothing in China, at least in the way we use the words, but he's trying to do some pro worker activism. He seems inclined to make it about something bigger, but Zhonglian is not in the right state of mind for that. So it's, yeah. again, it's a, it's a passing note in the story, but it, um, it made me pick up or it made, it, it fed into my interpretation there at the end that it is a story about, what life for the the bottom the bottom one well one one part of the working class in modern china what what it looks like for them maybe not maybe not very directly because the the mothers aren't really the ones out there doing the real grinding work it seems like the, the boy has been the young man has been on the receiving end of unregulated industry that has killed him if we don't think the curse killed him my first reading i was much more inclined to think Oh, it's the the curse is in some way real. It's a it's a it is a story about the supernatural. But on my second reading, I almost wasn't thinking about the curse. I don't know. It's just just how it went for me second time around. There's one other aspect that uh, struck me as a theme that could have both a supernatural and a realistic critique of rural society interpretation. Uh, these people are who are left behind in the village are thinking of the departed. There are the people who departed through death. Uh, that would be the, I guess, the, the husband of Jung Lian. Mm. She calls out his name. I forget whether he's dead or not, but anyway, he's not there. Uh, when she is having the struggle with oh, her yeah. nemesis. And both women, of course, are thinking of their sons who are not dead, but they're down south in Guangdong. One is in Dongguan. And, you know, they're both a, a means of reasserting their position in the village. Zhong uh, Yunglian keeps trying to contact her son, but can't through telephone calls and stuff. Uh, so there's this theme of, being isolated in the village away from your kith and kin. And that links up perhaps to certain supernatural ideas uh, that people 
want comfort from uh, the dead and departed as well as those who've departed for work. Anyway, the family is broken up. And on the other hand, it's a very real aspect of the hollowing out of rural China as IE and, and owning and others see it as everybody would, I think. Yeah, and we, we don't get the impression that the village is a particularly great place to live while we're there. There's a moment that made me blink twice where um, Yonglian wants to make a phone call, so she has to go to the designated village phone, the guy that manages it. And this is this story is not set in the distant past. This is, I guess, I even know this is a, a, real, a real phenomenon. I remember those days in Shanghai in the 1980s. Gosh. When you had to walk a block, perhaps, uh, even if you're real proletarians, didi da da da, wutan jeji, you had to walk a block to take a bath in the bathhouse. Right. And you cooked outside on a little brazier. Yeah. Mm. China has changed rapidly in the urban areas. Right. Yeah. So time time's moving at different speeds in different places. Um, if we're measuring time by technology and development, that is. Right. Yeah. yeah, I realize we've I had a, a whole set of questions for interpreting the story and we have danced on just about all of them. Um, so it's hard for me to single out one to throw directly at you. I'll, yes, I'll ask this one. I haven't asked this one yet. So we've been talking all high minded supernatural stuff. How about a more mundane question? Are there any likable characters in the story for you? Uh, I think we pity them more than we like them. Right. Yeah. I, I didn't find anybody I really cottoned to. A at the end, there, the fact that the two women who have been subject to petty revenge sort of things, uh, and maybe it could have developed into a feud, uh, come together. So to that extent, they're both kind of admirable. But uh, I didn't see anything likable in society or in individual personalities. I don't know. Did you feel differently? Y um, yeah, I think the moment where they... I don't know, I was going to say become friends, that might be overstating it, but there's some kind of a solidarity or a mutual understanding or some peace between the two of them. That, that, that's a moment where I liked both the characters. But prior to that, um, yeah, no one does anything very sweet or cuddly, I guess, except when uh, Yongmian's son turns up. She immediately, it's what she's been craving because he's been so distant and she immediately goes into, I guess, mommy mode and cooks for him and stuff. So that's, I guess, just basic kind behavior. But yeah, no one, none of these people are people I'd want to spend time with, I think. I, I don't think I don't think it would be very fun. And I don't think we'd have much to talk about, even if we did transcend language barrier. I think a low point in human relations is when uh, the woman who delivers the curse uh, becomes very jealous when the successful or evidently successful son of her mm. rival comes back. So she goes to the police and files a little report about him saying that, uh, what? Oh, he absconded after you busted his gambling project. Therefore, he didn't have to pay up his fines and nobody else in town did either. Also, he brought back a so-called prostitute, which may or may not be true. Uh, so yeah, she's informing on a neighbor. That's not very nice. And using the police to do it. Yeah, and right from the start, she's really quite unpleasant because the minute her chicken is gone, her first assumption is that um, her neighbor has taken it and she has no evidence for that. It's just her gut. And she's 
I guess it, we we can see she's not all that smart because she immediately just trusts her gut and uh, gets very um, what's the word uh, very very aggressive very quickly. She goes all in on something that gives gives us zero evidence. And there there's a bit um, a bit that's almost it's pretty comical. Um, I'm just trying to find it. Yeah, so there's this paragraph that just made me go like, oh my, oh my goodness. Um, it goes like this. Whenever the two women encountered each other, Zhang would strive to match her antagonist's look of contempt. She stretched some sheet plastic over the fence around the chicken coop to prevent the birds from flying away and asked her son-in-law to, to write death to thieves on the strip of red cloth wrapped around every chicken's leg. So there's this amazing mental image of all these chickens walking around with a death threat tied to their leg. <laughs> just crazy yeah. <laughs> so yeah and she's her face is very much concerned once the chicken does return on its own because it hasn't been stolen she has to kill it and eat it yeah uh, just to save face yeah so, so it can't. takes yeah takes the death of her son to own up to it it seems mm-hmm. what i wanted to ask a follow-up question to this one what did you think about the things motivating the characters like what's i guess we Talked what talked about what drove Zhong Lian crazy, but just in general, what's driving these people? Because like, I guess when Guo Feng, uh, our protagonist son, shows up, we're told episodes of like his ventures out into the working world, and I think there's one story where like he borrows a van, he drives the van out of town, or is it his friend? One of the young men, anyway. Um, borrows a van, drives the van out of town, calls, yeah. and they've just lost the van. And it's very sort of, that totally reminded me of uh, The Stranger, where it's like, I've done something stupid. Why did you do it? Mm. I don't know. I've done something completely incompetent and useless. Why are you so incompetent? I I, I don't know. It's, it's really absurd to me in the existential sense. Of course, as a critic, you could also ask, why did he put that detail in the story? Mm. I mean, it shows a certain insouciance on part of the uh, the negligent son and so forth. Uh, they're all, they gamble and they, they're they not really upstanding people, but on the other hand, you have to sympathize with them in their, the straits that they're in. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it must be a debate in um, sorts of left-leaning or, yeah, yeah, left-leaning realism, because re- realism is a genre in I guess definitely in cinema, in British cinema, it is essentially a socialist genre. And there's often, I guess, realism as a literary genre outdates a lot of those political concerns. But as far as I'm aware, it tends to be a genre that has its sympathies with the downtrodden who are on the sort of the receiving end of all the unfortunate, the hard end of life. Because if, if you've got lots of money, you can cushion yourself from the real world. Yeah. I certainly do. Well, I have enough money to do some of that. Here I am in a house. That's that's one example. Um, but yeah, if, if you're if you're living day to day, then you are going to be more subject to the problem of needing to eat, needing heat, um, needing a roof over your head. So yeah, um, where where was I going with that? Yes. So the the, the debate if if you are some idealistic left leaning person who wants to do something with your creative works to help the least well-off people. Do you do you follow your um, your creative realism and be absolutely honest about all the behavior you see, 
which often might not be that great because if if you are living a deprived life you might end up a somewhat deprived person like social problems go where where the where where the poverty is mm. um do you do that or do you take the more sort of soviet or maoist approach and write marvelous fables where the downtrodden are the good guys and do nothing wrong and it's pretty clear to see that this story is pretty much exclusively in that first camp i mentioned although the hill i die on is that at the end we get something a bit more symbolic that um doesn't paint an absolutely heroic picture of the two women but paints a kind of bittersweet beautiful picture of them and i guess that if i'm trying to think of like classic british social realist films some of them do go for the bittersweet like there's the one that springs to mind is kes the one about the boy in the kestrel don't know if you've heard of that one no i don't think i know that one hmm. it's about a, a working class lad i think he's in somewhere in the north of england a lot of the early ones are all in the north of england hmm. and he adopts a pet kestrel and uh has a very sort of touching relationship with it but he has i forget if it's a big brother or a dad who's sort of no-nonsense type who eventually just kills Kes the Kestrel. So sort of classic, bittersweet, well-beloved piece of um, cinema. I've not seen it, by the way, so <laughs> I'm really talking at my ass. But yeah, like, seems to me the bittersweet is a nice way to sort of have your cake and eat it. Yeah. These people are not uh, near starvation or anything. They have no. chickens. They have access to a truck. It's basically technology that keeps them from having the telephones, although there are cell phones afoot. Makes yes. me wonder about uh, cell towers. Do they have cell towers there? I guess. I certainly found living in China on a Chinese SIM card, I never lacked for signal. Whereas here in the UK, I'm often, if I'm in the wrong spot, I've got no signal. I didn't remember seeing many of the cell towers, but, and I also wasn't far in the countryside that often, but I remember noticing this, this. The signal was generally better than it is here in the UK. Yeah. yeah. Well, technological progress in the even the small cities has been rapid. I remember 1980, Huang in West Hunan. There, at one intersection in town, there was a 20 watt light bulb that helped people see their way. Uh, come back in uh, what 2002 or 2003, they have the equivalent of McDonald's and stuff like that. Things have yeah. changed very rapidly. Yeah, I guess that it's fair to point out that, I mean, the presence of chickens in the story—that's that's the giveaway. These people aren't wanting for food. They're yeah. The in the hierarchy of needs, the mm -hmm. those those really foundational needs have been met. It's the, I guess, education is probably one of the big ones that's missing, and also apart maybe something to do with their lives because I feel like no one really. Maybe, I mean, maybe Yongmian's two problems are her son's not around and she's not happy about that. And she's got nothing to do except, you know, spy on her neighbor and become resentful. Maybe if she'd had scope for a hobby or travel or something, then she wouldn't have tied the word death to thieves to the legs of all of her chickens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I'll ask another one of my ready-made questions. Do you think the story gives us an insight into IE's worldview as a writer or as a person? if we can even claim to know such a thing? Uh, I don't, well, 
No, <laughs> to be, I really am, am kind of bewildered. I don't know what his worldview is. I know he is an explorer. He likes to explore different literary styles. He reads everything, uh, all sorts of genres, mostly avant-garde. I don't know of his of any worldview that I can really, but especially these these stories in two lives, uh, they don't connect up. Um, would Would you like to hear a plot summary of of another strange one for two lives? Absolutely. Very so this quickly. is this recently published yeah, collection of short stories, right? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Uh, so Ling Tung in a mountain town tries to commit suicide after failing college entrance exams for the eighth time, but he is stopped from walking into a river, as happens in another story. He goes up a mountain and asks a monk if he can be an acolyte, but the monk refuses. Then uh, the young man, uh, Joe, rapes a young woman after she calls him a psycho. He steals her bike and flees. Uh, then he goes across the Yangtze, becomes a beggar. He saves a woman from being beaten by a group of men. She gives him a slip of paper with her telephone number in Beijing. A police search party, search party arrives. He escapes. He travels around as a beggar, ends up in Sudro, is seized by a local cop, but then he calls the phone number of that woman in Beijing whom he rescued. She comes, cleans him up, gets him a job in her dad's company in Beijing. Uh, the boy is given a company to run in Malaysia. <laughs> uh, eight years later, people from his town uh, arrive, but not to arrest him. They say that the rape charge was bogus. There is no evidence. Zhou Lingtung goes home, presumably to Jiangxi. Uh, his parents are dead, but the townsfolk receive him as a celebrity. He's a rich man now. Mm. He goes back to the local Buddhist temple. Uh, the monk there is now a different monk. The old monk, uh, whom Zhou Lingtung met uh, eight or ten years ago, blamed the, the new monk for coming and making him starve to death because there wasn't enough food for both of them. End of story. So it's sort of a concatenation of unlikely events, all very unfeeling in a very cold, cold world, I would say. Mm, yeah. Uh, sometimes phraseology is strange, almost dreamlike. But if you think the curse is weird, you should read these works in two lives. The others that are even stranger, there is, in fact, one in the attic about um, body parts in the trunk, Ooh. a footlocker. Yikes. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's, obviously, these are crime cases with strange, aberrant psychological aspects that have come together. But exactly what the logic of the story is, is sometimes unclear to me. Mm. So I'll really be looking forward to this, this new one from uh, Nikki Harmon, waking me up at 9 a.m. Is that one she's doing a novel or is it another collection? I think it's a novel. Right. Okay, yeah, that'll be great because that'll be the second ever IE novel in English translation. All of her works are good. I also look forward to reading uh, Broken Wings, the Jia Pinghua thing about uh, Guai Mai. The, I presume it's the kidnapping and, and sale of women and children and so forth. Have you read that? Uh, I've had on, time for you. It's on my shelf. I haven't read it yet. Uh, my girlfriend has read it, funnily enough. But yeah, that, that one is from the perspective of the kidnapped woman who's called Butterfly in Nikki's translation. Yeah. And she's taken out to rural uh, Shanxi 
jazz jazz home province while while you were describing that ie story i uh, before he got rich i was thinking of a non-fiction book i read i guess this might this one might be in your wheelhouse uh the corpse walker by liao yiwu do you know that one no uh again who's the author liao yiwu yeah yeah i I think i've maybe heard but i don't really know it no i don't know all right it's really interesting it's very ie-esque i think or maybe even owning-esque because it's this guy he as a project i believe he was interviewing people who were like basically outside of mainstream chinese society who were sort of i think it has a subtitle that sort of um says it very directly let me just google very quickly the corpse walker by liao yu Reels, it's it's a it's an it's an interestingly formed title. It has two colons, the corpse walker colon real life stories colon China from the bottom up. So he's speaking to people who are right at the bottom, but many of them have um they're like they're living as musical performers turned beggars. There's a Falun yeah Falun Gong practitioner. There's a human trafficker. There's a public toilet manager. There's a professional mourner. So someone you can pay to show up to your family member's funeral and cry for you. There's a leper. He found a leper, a grave robber. And he talks to them all kind of respectfully, quite frankly. There's one who, one really funny one where he does um, get a bit abrasive with the guy. It's a man. It feels like a, a short, an absurd short story and set in the countryside. It's a man who... I think he took over a, a, a town and set up base in the town hospital. He appointed himself an emperor and declared his county uh, a new kingdom and demanded that, I don't know, the prefectural level government or the national government let them se- secede. And I think he did get away with it for a while before, you know, sufficiently armed policemen could show up to shut him down. And yet yeah, he was in prison but still would like refer to him, if I remember right, would still refer to himself in the third person as the so-and-so emperor <laughs> and kept this up while Liao was trying to interview him. And I think you, it's very subtle, but you can see in the way the questions that Liao is getting annoyed at this guy. <laughs> but also, yeah, uh, but most of the chapters are not that funny. But what they all have in common is that they're quite invisible, with the exception of like this emperor, they're all quite invisible people. And you definitely see that in um, uh, The Perfect Crime, that for a lot of that story, the main character is able to drift around unseen because uh, although he goes from hotel to hotel, he's able to find ones where you don't need ID. Um, and I guess he never travels by rail. For rail in China, you need ID. But if you're going through dodgy hotels and if you're traveling by bus uh, or by bike or something, then you, you know I. I think you can stay more or less invisible, especially if you're out of the city, away from the CCTV. And it's an interesting thought for this very controlled country. There is, you know, there is a, a an, not an underbelly, but an under, an under, underworld sounds too dark. There is like detritus that blows in the wind that could go through a very strange life, like that guy in that IE story, or like these real people. And that does feel like a really interesting seam for both realist and weird, strange writing to sort of mine for stories. Hmm. Now, these these characters sound very lumpen proletarian. Lumpen, there you go. That's the word I was looking for. 
But one thing I didn't mention uh, when we were talking about the current scene of crime literature in China today, uh, ghost and supernatural themes and horror themes do enter, enter them somewhat. I've only read one book in translation by uh, Cai, uh, Cai Jin, mm. uh, who combines these things. He has an interview also, if you want to look at him, at this uh, EU uh, China 2020 Lit Fest thing. All right. He's on screen on YouTube. You can listen to him. But uh, he's combined some of these themes. Uh, again, it's an unexplored territory. <laughs> Was that the child's past life that you read? Yes, yes, yes. I I've read that. I loved that book, um, and I'm really hoping to do it on the show. But I didn't know who else had read it, and God damn it, <laughs> the oh, dear, one, the one guy I could have got, I I just used him. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm I will. If if anyone listening would like to talk about a, a horror book in Chinese horror book in translation. You know, I'm extremely game for that. But yeah, that you're right. That one does have crime and thriller elements, especially, and a, and a mystery that needs to be solved as well. Um, mm. I guess the mystery is there from the start, but it does go more into like crime and thriller and stuff being done in secret as it progresses. But yeah, mm. I yeah I I really like that book, but maybe because it's set in a lot of parts of Shanghai that I used to frequent the Suzhou Suzhou Creek. We've been going for an hour, 20 minutes. I think I've kind of gone everywhere I wanted to go with questions about the story. Maybe there's one more I could do. I don't know. So we talked, I've, I've certainly brought up um, socialism, social realism, socialist realism a few times. Um, we've talked about class quite a lot, but I just wonder if, if you've got any thoughts about that, how in an ostensibly socialist or communist whatever you want to call it country there is a huge class inequality and this story is about i guess the big equality right is the urban and the rural and this story is about the rural people so as a reader or as an academic does that i don't know does that does that stand out to you or do you have ways of thinking about that hmm well, of course, it's important. Uh, one of the themes in, is whether or not the sons send money back to the mm. village, which is an important thing. Uh, or I guess once upon a time, factory girls would come back and open up little shops and so forth. I don't know that a shop would survive here. But um, yeah, there is a class element. I always, You always wonder in these uh, stories about the countryside, whether or not there's a certain condescension or patronizing attitude by these urbanized writers. Mm. Uh, when, I, when I first read uh, The Curse, in fact, I thought of a work by Lee Ray, uh, which I was asked to translate by Helen Cho, an anthropologist at Yale who wrote a book called Furrows that uh, assembled some short stories about, I guess, they would be mostly 1980s writers uh, looking at the countryside. And uh, the story I translated there by Lee Ray was uh, selecting, a th was electing a thief, Xuanzei, where they had uh, an election to decide who had stolen something. And uh, it, it was kind of a, uh, an interpretation of country folks' incomprehension of democracy. People were being told to implement democracy. So why don't we have an election to decide who the thief is and of course select somebody who's unpopular. Uh, 
And of course, if, if you look at these things in retrospect, then you wonder if there's a kind of patronizing turn. But Lee Ray, of course, is a great writer and uh, more so than I, I think his, his facts are more to the point. I just leaves you guessing. So yeah, there is, it, it's interesting to think about how cops would fit into this. I think of them as mostly lower middle class. They're viewed as brutes and bullies by most people uneducated within urban China. And it's, it's interesting that here in the countryside, uh, you find people talking back to the cops. Mm. Right? They're not afraid of them. I don't know why. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it's not the most subtle thing in the story, but one of, these, one of these cops, one of the meaner ones, has a Stalin mustache. That's, mm. that's pretty to the point. And yeah, there's a, there's a scene where we have a scuffle um, where the villagers are, are fighting, fighting the police. There, there's a book I read, um, well, a, a volume, an academic volume called uh, Chuang. I, I think I brought it up earlier on much earlier on in the show's history, which is all about sort of, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, what would you call it? Slightly anarcho-communist uh, critique of just the economics of the PRCs. And uh, that volume one, I think, takes you through the 50s through to 20, or 21st century, uh, broad strokes from what I remember, just talking about how exploitation has changed shape, but not really gone away. But I think one thing it does tell you is that um, there are government stats on the number of protests and incidents that occur, and it it's pretty huge. Um, I guess that you don't hear about them so much because they're they're small, they're, they're localized, they tend to be about specific issues, but often I guess as well they're they're way out there in the countryside. I have on the order of a hundred thousand a year, right? Right. Maybe, I don't know what's happened lately under COVID and all that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think the book said the the government doesn't view these as as a crisis or anything, um, and is often able to address them rather than suppress them. So just I don't know. I guess I'd just mention that for any readers who are reading the story and are shocked that IE can depict some villagers scuffling with local police. I don't think it. I suppose it might be a little bit of a risky thing to write about, but it's not. It's not something that is completely uh, like, what would I say, like a gunpowder keg incident. It's not, it's nothing like Tiananmen 1989. It's, I guess, a feature of possibly some kind of a feature of life for, now that, it, I, maybe not, it's, it's maybe not every day, but it's not some shocking, huge thing if it's this minor scuffle. Well, in this story, the woos are connected up at the yeah. provincial level, according to one version of the story. So that- Right, and that did get taken out. To- Throw their weight around. It, it's interesting that when the uh, riot begins to germinate, the uh, police, including the IE figure, abscond. Right. <laughs> they flee. Yeah. Kind of like in a recent city in Texas. Uh, right. I think that's all my formal questions about the story. I probably should move us on to the miscellaneous uh, section now so that we're not talking all night. Or, well, it's night here at my end. You, that's you, right. You probably could go for hours if, if you wished, but I'm going to have to go to bed at some point. So um, first miscellaneous question, would you like to suggest a Chinese word of the day that sort of captures the essence of the story? For IE's plots in general, uh, dissociated. This is a term from psychology 
right. that I don't really understand. I, in in Chinese, they keep talking about noir and uh, you know, which I guess in Chinese is heian, and but I've never understood the, the word noir in in English, if you can call that French word English. But um, unmotivated. It reminded me a little bit of the early avant-garde works of uh, Yu Hua in the 1980s. Uh, if you've ever gone back and read those, Xianshi uh, Yizhong, another kind of reality, a story named after 1986. One sentence doesn't necessarily follow the logic or have any particular connection to the sentence in front of it. Uh, this was sort of my impression of some of the plotting in some of the stories, not so much this one but uh, inexplicable, unmotivated, mm. inexplicable. Uh, there's no way of putting it all together. It's almost random. So uh, I guess that would be my dissociated in a psychological sense. And IE is interested in psychology and abnormal psychology, definitely, right. as a motivation for crimes. I think he once said that most crimes are accidental, mm. which would, would really mean then unmotivated but would come perhaps from, if not circumstance, then carelessness or, you know, just letting your emotions run up. I don't, I don't really understand the thinking there, but, but it, it does probably link up with the philosophy of existentialism, that you live in the moment and what, what comes later is not necessarily determined by what happened in the past. Yeah, and we, we don't understand our drives. We don't have a little screen that shows us our unconscious or the, we don't have a little app on our phone that shows us how much adrenaline is running through our, our biological system at any given time. And yeah, if, I, if someone annoys me, I guess you see it in TV shows a lot. Someone pushes someone out of anger and then that person lands the wrong way and then their life's over and that person has just become a killer. I mean, I'm sure that's how that's the description of a lot of um, manslaughters that happen. Just completely absurd things that needn't have happened. I, I read a thing just in a Facebook comment thread recently that it was on stats about suicides. Sorry to take things in a dark direction. But according to this, this one Facebook commenter, who perhaps isn't the most reliable source to, to, to quote, but this one Facebook commenter who said they knew what they were talking about, said that in most cases, suicides are not the result of long, um, drawn out plans or ideations. They tend to be the result of like ideations that began five, 10, 15 minutes ago. They're a very rapid uh, series of a, a rapid decline into like the sort of fatal action. And yeah, I guess that's it's all the more tragic because how that person not fallen into that one state of mind you know it, given another half hour that state of mind would be gone and like i don't know i if, if i think of a time when i become very angry all the world's gone black and then an hour later i can't even understand how i could have got into that headspace and i think that yeah it points to like for me existentialism it's a lot like um some other a lot of kinds of philosophy it's about doing away with your illusions and in existentialism it's often comforting illusions that you need to do away with but the idea is to come out the other end more i don't know not a nihilist but more sure that even despite all the things set against you you at least now understand them and you can face them and do something about it um i just since since it's a chinese word of the day 
what's what's the best translation for oh, disassociated? Oh, uh, I looked it up actually. The uh, Jiali or Ligia, Jiali, something like that. There is a Chinese term for it. Uh, Ligia. Okay. Uh, let me just. Hang on. Uh, yeah, Jiali is what they come up with. Right. Okay, I'll pop that in my notes. Lovely. So disassociated Jiali. The, the, to make it the adjective yeah um now the next one i guess the the story kind of answers this question oh, for oh. us oh here it gets yoli yo is in to journey yoli oh that's okay. associate uh okay yeah right. i think it's the more the psychological term right okay so our word of the day i'll put to yeah. to disassociate and Hopefully, I remember what yo, the right yo looks like. Yeah, shui zi pang, san dian shui. Yo. Oh, yeah, it's got the san dian shui, so that, I think, I'm pretty sure that's the right one. That's yeah. the same yo from lu yo, holiday, right? Right. Okay, great. Now, the next question, I think the story basically answers this one for us, so pressure's off if you want to use the song in the story but if you could pick any piece of music to pair the curse with what would it be i knew from some of your uh, previous podcasts that this would come up a very strange idea came to me last night mm -hmm. uh because uh ie wrote a story or a novel collection a story collection called meow kanjen walla the bird mm. saw me right which somehow stuck in my mind and so then i began to think of uh edith piaf uh the little okay. sparrow <laughs> and uh la monde piaf or something in in french and uh so i i, I was thinking of that uh and i then i think well maybe non je ne regret rien i'm not sorry about anything uh, i guess that's sort of like the fellow who narrates a perfect crime. Ni le bien qu'on m'a fait, ni le mal, tout ça m'est bien égal. Rien de rien. Non, je ne regrette rien. C'est payé. I'm not sorry for anything I did. <laughs> Whatever you can figure there. But that, that would be a very existentialist thing. Probably good that comes from France. Yeah, yeah, the, the home of existentialism. So we'll go with that one. Non je ne regrette rien. I think we might, I, I will have to check this. I, we might have had that on another episode, but. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I'm not sure though. I'm, I'm, People like her. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's it's for me. Being a millennial, that's just the not just, but first thing that I think of when I think of that song is the film Inception because it makes it makes well, it's it's key to the plot actually that song. So yeah. I knew what it sounded like long before I actually knew the name. So well, something punk or uh, grunge or something like that would probably be more appropriate, but that's beyond me. I began my musical consciousness with when I sat down with 
my parents for the new TV thing, uh, Your Hit Parade. So uh, <laughs> probably didn't have, I, I don't know. These are sort of the crooners generation. So they didn't like Elvis, so I didn't like Elvis. I used to listen to um, tapes, actually, as well as CDs of an old British uh, comedy radio show called The Goons that had Spike Milligan, Peter Sellers and Harry Seacombe. And they would, a big a big part of the show, definitely every episode, um, at least once, often several times, they would be parodying, parodying or mocking the other radio shows of the time. So they would say, if I don't know, if they wanted to mock some contemporary music, they'd say, and now here's what's on the hit parade. And as like a 10-year-old boy or, yeah, 10-year-old boy, the hit parade, what is that? And then I realized, oh, it's just the hits. It's the top 20, but that's what that's where the, I guess, the hits is just the contracted form of the hit parade. Yeah, the authors, uh, of, of the uh, singers of the 50s, Dorothy Collins, Snooky Lanson, Giselle McKenzie, not all of which my parents liked, I have to admit, and I will give credit to my father. He never much, he always thought that Frank Sinatra should have retired much earlier. So they did have some taste. Okay, <laughs> excellent. I realized um, for my next, oh no, I need to, I need to do my, my musical pick before I start getting onto the bonus oh, yes. question. Right, so I did pick something a little bit more punky, uh, although the song itself is, is uh, probably more grungy than punky. So the, the band is Converge. They are, uh, a, as you could call them one thing, a hardcore punk band, um, except extremely. They, they have pushed the label as, well, early in their career, they pushed the label as far as they could go with like how fast, how aggressive, and how ruthless can it be without sort with, with keeping the cartoony, cartoony thing to a minimum. Um, they're a little bit more adult than some of the other bands in the genre. They, they tend to get acclaim. They've they've done a, a collaboration al uh, album with uh, musician Chelsea Wolfe that's getting them into like newspapers like The Guardian. So it's a highbrow choice I've gone for here. But um, the song of theirs, it's from a later album. I think, to be honest, a lot of their albums I can't really listen to, but I bought one called, I think, it, yeah, Axe to Fall, which has some very short, very fast tracks, but then a couple of longer, slow ones. And this is one of the longer, slow ones. And there's an amazing uh, fan-made music video for it, stitched together from a few films with sort of sur surreal, um, put it like this, it's the only time I've seen satanic imagery in a metal music video not look stupid. It's actually very powerful and weird. The song is called Wretched World, and it's basically just, it's not describing a fantasy world, it's just describing everything wretched and sad and heartbreaking about our own world but in a sort of a drudging dirge sort of a fashion It's like mournful, it's got a strange, the blackest version of bittersweet you could imagine. Like the one the one solace you have in the wretched world is that you're going through it with everyone else. And yeah, I I think it I think it would work if you were making a film of, of this um 
of this story, especially the quieter parts, because it does build up points. But yeah, that, that's what I'd pick. Um, I'll have popped a little 30 seconds of each of these tracks for the listeners. So they'll, oh, um, they I'll can, have look yeah, they yeah. can listen to a beautiful, beautiful French voice and then they can endure 30 seconds of uh, depression from Converge. Now, my next one, it's a bonus question for Patreon. I actually forgot to write this one, so I have to think of it off the cuff right now. Uh, let me see. Okay, here's one. If if you could set IE into writing either a fiction or non-fiction uh, book about a real-world criminal, could be a serial killer, could be someone else. Who would you who would you commission him to write about? I guess I'll close the bonus question there. I think that'll do nicely. I'll take us to our final questions. Um, so I think we've kind of answered this one through our conversation, but if, if our listeners want more like The Curse, where could we point them? Well, other books by IE being are being translated. One will come out soon. Uh, Two Lives, I it takes lots of patience to go through. You have to read each story twice to really figure out what's going on. And that has just been out for a couple of years. Chinese literature, you know, other than the ones we've mentioned, uh, like The Untouched Crime and so forth, I'm trying to think, Tsai Jun's, uh, for corruption, what's uh, Murum Shuetsun, uh, book, uh, what is it, the, the novel about red dust? Dancing Through Red Dust. Dancing Through Red Dust, yes. That was uh, entertaining. It was a bit wearying because it went on. It's kind of reminded me of a late Qing muckraking or Hei An, uh, or Hei Mu, Xiao Fu. Uh, one crime after another, countenanced or actually created by lawyers and judges conspiring with each other, setting people up. Uh, that's sort of a run-on novel. I don't think it was published by a major publisher, but that, that might be more interesting for people who are interested in corruption than in the name of the people. If, if that is available even in English, I don't know. I can rec recommend one very good book all about corruption, and it's called Corruption and Realism in Late Socialist China, The Return okay. of the Political Novel. <laughs> so yeah, I, I had to have to Google it to remind myself of the name. But yeah, that's Jeffrey's own book on, on exactly the topic. It's, I guess, if you have academic access, that, that might be the best way to get it, because it's from an academic press. But I honestly really enjoyed reading that one. It was like there was uh, the advantages of being in small office. Wang yeah. Xiaofang, uh, the Civil Servants Notebook, translated by someone from that wonderful organization, Paper Republic, Eric Abrahamson. Oh yeah. Oh yes. We discussed it once in an email, and I think even he doesn't recommend. I, I think ah. the one of the chapters is narrated by the chair in which the corrupt officials pigu uh what they call it arse but or uh, but. in uh, yes in english what would i call it uh in scott i'll give you the scottish erse Erf, okay erse literature wonderful that takes patience to go through but <laughs> i appreciate him the civil service I mean, it. he uh eric abrahamson i think he according to one report recommended to the Chinese government that the delegation of writers who would come in 2015 to the Book, Ex uh, Book Expo America thing. Mm. Uh, there was a group, 
Uh, he himself gave a talk. I'm sorry I didn't listen to it, but that's where I got to meet. I there were lots of associated things uh, going on, and it was a really good group of authors. Ai was one of them. Bi Fei Yu, Liu Zhenyun, Su Tong. Very few women writers. Uh, Sheng Ke Yi. Oh yeah, was supposed to come, but she couldn't come. I think ah. she had some things that got her in trouble. Fang Fang. I guess not the Fang Fang who's famous now. No, Lan Lan, I think, uh, right. a poet uh, came. And there was simultaneously, uh, the International Pen had a, uh, what would we call it, a protest featuring Jonathan Franzen and Moon Shuetsun, I think, was there somehow. Yeah, I think I've heard about this one. Yeah, it was uh, a, a big chance for China to come onto the scene, but they really blew it. All the, they had enormous, I think it was a quarter of a million square feet of exhibition space. It was mostly Japanese war crimes against China, Xi Jinping, biographies, ah. and lots of children's books, not not children's literature, like, like Helen Wong has introduced us to, but you know, primers, mm. language books uh for the overseas chinese market and it was just uh it was not but it, there was an entrance fee and it was all spread out over five days so it was quite a disappointing thing but there were lots of meetings on the side where as, as at the china institute where we got to see some people and i guess eric uh can claim some credit for the good relatively good authors that were chosen yeah i think he was one um that remi- reminds me a bit of again uh, a very early episode of the show where I recounted my experience at the London Book Fair, where I just shamelessly tried to find as many Chinese things as I could. And yeah, I had a few really quite nice conversations with some of the people at the stands, but leafing, leafing, glancing around the shelves, looking at what books they had there for people to look at. Yeah, it wasn't very impressive. Uh, educational kid. The kids' stories were some of the more interesting ones because they at least were stories. Everything else was um, sort of... I think like foreign foreign languages, press translations of various classics, then lots of very sort of uh, communist party self history sort of stuff. Just you know, nothing that was really going to grab anyone. And I, I think that the event you're describing, I've I met Murong Shuetsun once in London, and I think he talked about he talked about a few different things um, hmm. that you know would definitely be in his avenue, sort of. Um, being being a disappointed dissident sort of things. And I think he did maybe mention that one, that, yeah, yeah. that it was a, a unimpressive um, handling of a great opportunity. But at the same, but it's nice to know that you said there that there were at least some interesting authors. That's, that's there cool. Some good authors. Yeah, Tashin supposedly was going to have a science fiction session. I'm not hmm. sure whether, not at, at this organization, uh, but on the side, there were so many different events on the side and there seemed to be a Chinese A-list and a B-list that I mm. can never figure out. And um, But Liu Cixin was, I think, just about simultaneously going to be there for the Nebula Science Fiction Awards in Chicago that year. He had got an award the year before and I guess was showing up uh, a year afterwards, you know, to make an entrance. I don't know whether he ever made it to New York or any of these things or not. You can read about at least one of his visits to New, to New York. Uh, there's a quite wonderful article. I'll, I'll send you the link 
uh, I think is it, I forget if it's the New Yorker or the New York New York Times, but it's by uh, oh that's terrible. Why have I forgotten? I follow this. I it's like the one journalist I follow on Instagram. Uh, hang on a second. I'll just look it up. It's called Liu Cixin's War of the Worlds. A uh, Jiayang Fan, I think she's called. Yeah, it's the New Yorker by Jiayang Fan, and she, so she's a Chinese American uh, journalist. And when he was on one of his visits to the States, he was in New York, he was there to collect a prize. And she, I guess, followed him around for a day or two. Uh, they chatted about stuff. Um, she noted lots of his observations about bits and bobs. And it's a very, it's a very fun read. It's an interesting portrait of the guy and his, uh, his trip. But yeah, I, I realize we're, we're venturing off the track again. So on to the last question, which is, what are you reading just now? Well, right now, frankly, I'm reading my own prose uh, prior to getting it copy edited uh, for right. the University of Wright Press. My my book that I introduced there leads on uh, detective novels set in China, but not not made in China. So, uh, no, I have a whole lot of books here that I have to read. Oh, my goodness. My my wife has recommended a novel by Russell Banks, which I started reading. I, I start reading things and then get distracted by somebody recommending something else. Mm. I'm right afterwards. I'm going to read something by a Singaporean writer, Kirsten Chun or Chin. I don't know how she pronounces it. A C H E N uh, called Counterfeit, which sounds like it might have some prime aspects to it. Um, another book that I want to get back to. Can't remember the author. It's a big book translated from a Middle Eastern language, I suppose, Arabic, uh, The Book of Impostures. Book of Impostures, that, that was a really interesting book. It was a really creative translation, as well as lots of footnotes for the academics and uh, you know, lots of good things to read that I just felt, it's too bad I'm a very slow reader. Yeah, I'm, I'm an okay reader, but my problem is sitting down and finding the time. And when I do have the time, not just grabbing my phone and scrolling i think that that is a problem for me what i am reading just now though is well it's a big book so progress is sort of by its nature slow i'm reading uh oh it's one of the offers is a guy that we we both met in leeds who's uh chen fan it's his oh, joint mm -hmm. book with kai fu lee uh 2041 ai 2041 so probably a lot of listeners already know that but the format of that one is kai fu writes you a very brief intro to a sci-fi short story that Tintu Fan has written and they all are sort of thought exercises of something AI could be doing uh, in 2041. They actually give a number. They say that the technology's chance, the, the tech in the story has an 80% chance of being a re reality by 2041 when all the stories are set. And by the end of the story, Kai Fu, Kai Fu Lee, who is a he works, he's a man who works in business, really. He's, I believe he's from Taiwan, but he's worked for a long time in Beijing in the world of AI and tech. Yeah, after Chen uh, Chofan's story, Kai Fu will write an essay that sort of analyzes the technology, talks about it, explains it, and then goes into the technical problems, some of the moral quandaries. And it's a very interesting book. It is weirdly similar to stuff I look at in my job right now. I'm in an industry magazine for the pharmaceutical industry. And being an, an industry magazine, people I interview, people who write in essays, are not out to tear the whole business to the ground. <laughs> and they, they, yeah, so they don't write critically about the industry very often. And they use 
a weird sort of business language. They have all this vocabulary that I don't see anywhere else. Like the um, the word revolution as a verb, revolutionize. Is it? Yeah, yeah, revolutionize. That that that's all over the place. So it it's we it feels weirdly similar to um to being at work because Kaifu is does he does sort of um pay lip service to the the problems and the implications and the critiques, but really it's a it's a book about AI by a guy who loves AI. Um and without Chofan's stories, I don't think I'd get through it. But they are they they bring, I mean, it's not quite this simple. It's more of a yin and yang thing, but really it's the story shows you the problems and the essay tells you gives you the problems versus the the the, the um the potential benefits of the technology so it might be disappointing for some who are looking for a more conventional sort of sci-fi dystopia it's a bit more level-headed than that the stories are less strange and weird than other chofan stories i've read they feel more like thought experiments than like something like year of the rat but it's pretty it's pretty different can definitely give it that. But that's what I'm reading. Yeah, there's been all sorts of uh, consideration. Or ordinarily, we like privacy and human rights and things like that. I've seen t- some people, of course, like universal surveillance as a means of controlling crime. Mm-hmm. But now I've seen a certain backlash in the U.S. The idea is that China has it's sort of a Cold War mentality. I don't know how you can get out of it, really, if China selects us as an adversary, China has a great advantage in AI because it has all this data, mm. uh, facial recognition, now voice prints, information collected in restaurants and stores and so forth, street scenes. So enormous amounts of data that can allow very discriminating algorithms. So how can North America and Europe catch up? Well, they've got to perfect their AI or else they'll be left behind. Mm. You know, you get into this, it's almost like a new thermonuclear race, right? You keep going further and further, but it becomes more and more anti-humane in a way. So uh, I don't know how to resolve these kind of things. Funnily, well, not funnily enough, Kaifu's other book is called AI Superpowers, and it's a, it is about the US and China. And I, f- I feel that again, my job sort of mirrors this, not so much in US-China rivalry, because the pharmaceutical industry industry in China is not on a sort of uh, Western country level in terms of its development, except in cell and gene therapy. There it is essentially not in a race, but on a on a par now with the US. But the thing the thing my job does underline for me is that yeah, the 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 US really is um, how can I say this? It's not just another Western country. It is this in, in pharma. That's where all the great big money and movers are and the 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 us's fda is that well i suppose europe does has its own regulation agency but just it it's an eye-opener to what a standard setter and leader so many things in the states are and what a big deal that is if another country moves in as a as a peer or an equal it completely changes things yeah Yeah. well there's great concentration of power and money and uh, institutional capture by the private sector of mm-hmm. governmental organs in many cases. So you don't know what to say. Yes. No need to say anything. I think it speaks for itself. Yeah. Um, okay. That, that is, um, that is our lot. 
is there anything we've not hit on that you'd like to mention just now I think I've exhausted my possibilities. Thank you very much, Angus. Uh, hope we hear more about your pharmaceutical exploits sometime. But you've certainly added a lot to Chinese literature studies. Mm, yeah, well, I, I don't. I have a degree in lit to help me. I don't have a degree in bioscience, but I am learning on the job. And I do actually have an article, uh, a fairly well. It's an interview article. It's not written by me. But it is an interesting uh, look at Chinese pharma. Uh, it's an interview with the guy called Hong Pan, who works for Lonza, which I think is a US, certainly a Western company who've been doing pharma operations in China since the 80s, or at least the early 90s, which is, you know, so they've been there a long time. Their head of China operations is this guy Hong Pan, so a, a Chinese guy. And I was hoping for some kind of interesting perspective rather than just like the guy talking about his own company and he obliged um he he even told us like a breakdown of like the five regions of the country which are the different pharmaceutical hubs and what their specialities are so one for the geography fans as well as yes. the, 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 the bioscience fans and yeah it's it's just it's just fantastic for that so many cities so many provinces you can combine them into all these different corridors and hubs it's a <laughs> cartographer's dream mm. but yeah um i will actually bring things to a close now so um jeffrey kinkley thank you so much for coming on the show it was just as fun as i hoped it would be thank you angus i enjoyed it too well we've reached the end of the episode now we have survived the curse i'm very glad to say i thank you again as is customary to my amazing guest, Jeffrey Kinkley. I think I made it clear, but it's just fantastic to have him on after having met him IRL, what feels like so long ago. Now, I'll cut to the chase, or at least I'll try to cut to the chase, by telling you what you can do to support the show if you enjoy it. So if you'd like to um, sort of keep me going, give me some pocket money, then the best way to do that is by signing up to Patreon. And the reason that's the best option is because you get something in return. I have a steady stream of bonus episodes, generally just me kind of pouring out my solo thoughts on something I've just read or something I'm about to do an episode on. It goes up there in a little um, mini podcast, basically. They tend to be 15 minutes to up to 30 minutes sometimes even over 30 veering towards 40 just depends how much of a rant i feel like doing uh, besides from that you can give something one off to the show via paypal uh, buy me a coffee all the links to that are uh, under support which you'll see in the show notes and on the trichific website which is well worth exploring by the way uh, trichific.podbean.com something i've not plugged for a while that i'll plug here plug here is the trichific map i've been pretty um consistent with adding locations to this map. It's like a custom Google map. So you can sort of look around China and indeed the rest of the world to see uh, locations that are linked to the stories I've covered. I I'm not really sure what I can do for this one because we've already put Ai's hometown and this village that um, appears in the story isn't a specific location. So maybe I'll try and be clever this time around. But anyway, um, that is linked to in the show notes as well. So please do check out the Trisha Fig map because I'm awfully proud of it, you know. Now, the best thing you can do for the show, if you did not already know, is not financial. It does not involve browsing stupid uh, imaginary maps that people have made on the internet, but it's um, just to tell people. That is the best thing you can do. If, if you know someone who you think would enjoy the show, just tell them. So tell your teacher, tell your dad, tell your wayward son, and tell that damn neighbor who's been stealing your chickens 
tell all the chicken thieves in the world to listen to this show and hopefully it will set them right. And on that note, I will say, Sai Jian.